For more than eight years, a cabin hidden amongst the trees of the Mount Baker Snoqualmie National Forest kept its wicked secret. Perched about 10 feet off the ground on a wooden platform, what would come to be known as the Fairy Cabin had mud-brown shingles surrounding several sets of glass windows. There were wooden shutters, a steep pitched roof, and what looked like runes of the occult carved into the walls and floor of the structure. To the few who found it, the cabin looked like the gingerbread house out of a Grimm Brothers fairy tale. Beautiful and magical, but also eerie and mysterious. Snuggled amongst towering evergreens, it had become covered in the same blanket of plush green moss that also covered every tree, bush, and boulder. It was almost like the fairy cabin had always been there, like it belonged there. In this old growth forest, Douglas fir, hemlock, and western red cedar grow skyward, shoulder to shoulder, their branches weighed down by thick tendrils of hanging moss. From the Canadian border down to Mount Rainier, the forest covers nearly two million acres. And for most of it, you won't find a paved road, a gravel path, or even a dirt trail. It took a park ranger with an intimate knowledge of the forest and an insatiable appetite for justice to finally rid this place of the evil that had been born there. And perhaps to see the fairy cabin burned to the ground. I went in looking into this, expecting something kind of whimsical and weird. And now I was looking at it and saying, oh my God, this is a crime scene. And I was just in absolute shock. I couldn't believe it. I'm Kim Shepard with Carolyn Osorio, and this is the scene of the crime. Okay, Kim, you set that up freaking perfectly. <laughs> Even if people are not from the Pacific Northwest, we're from the Pacific Northwest, and the forest, the woods, like, you brought me there. So you actually literally brought me there because this is your your neck of the woods. You yeah, live right so by... I, I love hiking, and I love horseback riding, and this is an area that we frequent quite a bit when we go on our trips out, and you do take certain precautions when you go out into the national forest in this area because it is so remote. And as we went there, it struck me about what people go into the woods for. I go into the woods and I go, I'm more of a Tiger Mountain girl, which is a, it's probably, it's, it's the first stop before you get to the Snoqualmie. Like right, how so it's far kind away? of a popular yeah. recreation yeah. spot versus yeah. the Snoqualmie National Forest, which is super dense, super huge, and you have to drive for half an hour to an hour to get really into it. Um, and you're going 20, 30 minutes with no cell phone service driving before you even get to the spot where you want to get out and go hiking or horseback riding or whatever you want to do out there. But it reminded me of the fact that when I go, I want to go in the woods, but I also don't want to go in too deep because... There's no cell service out where you took Yeah, me, and you you're know? not going to run across. Like, if you fall and break an ankle, you can call for help for days. Chances are no one's going to hear you. Uh, you know, if you lose your dog out there, 
good luck. I can't tell you how many lost dogs I've seen posted on our local Facebook page where people are like, hey, I went hiking, lost my dog four days ago, and you may never find it again because it is just so thick and so huge. So you've set the scene, and I think that part of what is so creepy about this this place, too, is that because I'm going out there for nature, hiking, enjoying it, but other people could be going out there to do some, you know, evil they could. Yeah. And there were a lot of rumors about that. That's actually how this story really started was with rumors. Around 2008, the locals started noticing there was this pickup truck that would go deep into the National Forest up along the middle fork of the Snoqualmie River on a regular basis. That in and of itself is not too surprising, according to C.J. Jones, who's a trail steward with the Washington Department of Natural Resources. The middle fork was known as a kind of a lawless place. And there are a lot of stories about it going when I started working there. It was a place where meth labs were, shop shops, you know, people live out there. If you stole a vehicle and wanted to take all this, you know, the, the useful parts from it and burn up the rest in the middle of the road, Middle Fork was the place to go. And in about 2016, the National Forest Service, the state and this nonprofit environmental group, they hatched a plan to pave the main road into parts of the woods. So it would be more welcoming for recreation, like what most people think of when they think of a national park. CJ knew that it was time to address all of these rumors. He decided to check in with the folks who lived in a handful of homes that are scattered around the edge of the forest. They were the ones who originally were telling me about some of these, I don't want to say mysteries. You had to be in the know about some of these things. And they knew about some of these little quirky sort of legends, I guess, of the Middle Fork. They told him that every weekend they would see one man and sometimes two arrive in a pickup, park in the same turnout area, and then disappear into the woods. No one knew exactly where they went or what they were doing, but they said it just didn't feel right. One of these unofficial forest stewards even wrote down the pickup's license plate, and other locals talked about stumbling across the cabin itself. Although it was so far from any known trail that they had a hard time describing to CJ exactly where they found it. I started going out. I went out first time with two of my environmentalist friends who we were all sworn to secrecy, and we went out and, uh, based on the description of generally where this was, we went and looked for it. I figured, well, I can just zigzag to the side of the main trail, look for where somebody for the past eight years has been going down. It's going to be a pretty obvious person trail. No problem. I'll figure this out. No issue. I don't know what's more creepy, the fact that this guy is going there every time or that there's neighbors where there's no people out there keeping tabs on this guy because, you know, it's it's out in the woods. Who it are is. these people keeping track? Well, a lot of the folks who live around the edges of the National Forest are people who thrive in that environment, who love it, and they want to take care of it. They are like stewards of the national park. Uh, if they see something, they say something or they at least, you know, <laughs> write it down like he wrote down the license plate because you never know what that person might have been doing out there. And maybe you want to keep keep track. Maybe they're poaching. Maybe they're, you know, taking wood that they're not supposed to of some of the old growth trees that are out there. It's a very environmentally sensitive area. There could be a lot of things happening. And so for that reason, uh, I think folks who live in that area feel a sense of ownership and a sense of duty to protect it. Yeah, it, it truly is the Wild West out there. So with years of experience, CJ felt like he was familiar enough with these woods that he would be able to find this cabin. But it turns out he didn't even catch a hint of it on his first time out. Later, he found out that he was actually just a few hundred feet from the structure on that first day. But with oh all gosh. of the natural camouflage and, you know, not a hint of a trail, he had just like walked right by it. And he's a really experienced 
dude, right? I mean, yeah. he's got a he's a park ranger. That's just what he does day in and day out for years. And in this particular forest, he had been there for several years already. Uh, it was getting to be late fall at this point. The rain was starting to come in, and soon it was going to be turning to snow. So CJ would have to put off his quest for the cabin until the spring. But he wanted to give it just one more try before that happened. He went back to the locals and asked if there was any chance they had any more information that might help him pinpoint this location. And that's when he got the break he needed. Someone came across this cabin years earlier, and they'd taken a picture of it. CJ said he was now certain he would be able to find it. So again, he convinced a couple of friends to go out there with him. I was very excited. It was my birthday, November 18th, 2016. Um, I believe I turned 28 at the time. And I figured I can find the cabin. We can have lunch there, you know, look around. It'd be kind of weird, whatever. But mission accomplished, right? So I remember I was pretty excited. I was just going, you know, I had my GPS out and I was going, oh, maybe it's right here. Oh, what about this ridge over here? And I'd run over to that and look around. Oh, no, no. And look at and constantly be looking at my phone. I was very hyped up. And so I got a little bit further away from my two friends to the point where uh, you can't just say, hey, over here, you know, it's a little too far away for that. So I heard one of my friends yell, just like, ah, I knew exactly what it was. So me all excited, I was really excited now. I put my phone in my pocket, and I'm running. By the way, I have a bad knee. I can't run. Oh my god! So I was running, not only <laughs> down these hills and through doing? all these creeks and everything else, uh, through Devil's Club, thorny plants, just throwing them aside. No big deal, you know. Adrenaline's going. I am just super happy. So I wanted to be the first one in. Even from the outside, CJ could tell this wasn't anything like what he expected to find there. Now, during his forestry career, he'd seen a lot of makeshift hunting cabins. He'd seen some old mining cabins that were built back during the gold rush. So he was kind of familiar with these, you know, cabin in the woods. They all had a few things in common. They would be built on the ground, first of all. They also were generally built with materials that you could easily find laying around in the forest. This cabin, though, was definitely different. It was built by a craftsman. It had store-bought materials. It was something that they likely started building somewhere else, and then they would drag these large pieces into the forest, heave them up onto this platform, and then piece them together. And finally, there were the runes, the Norse (laughs) runes and Latin phrases that were carved into the wood. All of this made CJ even more eager to see what was inside. I hopped up on there threw open the door and the first thing I saw staying across from me at the cabin was a naked child. And it was the shock sort of set in. Beyond the illegal material was the, the pictures of the the fairies. Those were in there. This, but they, it sort of took on a more sinister tone when you think about it, right? When you have sexualized fairies, you know, that are meant to be almost childlike. And there's six or eight pictures of also these naked children framed behind glass, all hung in the walls. It was shocking. It was absolutely shocking. The illicit pictures were not just nailed into the walls. There were heavy wooden frames that were screwed and tightly secured to the cabin. CJ realized he'd have to bring in more equipment and more bodies if he hoped to retrieve any evidence for police. So he called a friend, a deputy, with the King County Sheriff's Office. He called me back almost immediately and said, you found what? 
I said, yeah, you know, he said, oh my gosh, just burn it to the ground. And that thought had already crossed CJ's mind. It's what they would normally do in this kind of situation. They'd want to make that illegal structure uninhabitable and let the people who built it know that they probably shouldn't try that again. It was definitely tempting, especially with his deputy friend going out of town and winter just weeks away. But he couldn't let it go. CJ was one of those guys. As much as he never wanted to see that cabin again and its contents, he wanted justice even more. So he grabbed his power drill, several industrial weight trash bags, and he went back. This time he went alone. Nobody was out there. It was a Friday. So I figured, you know what? I need to hustle. Because this guy, he could be coming today. He could be coming while I'm here. Do I want to meet this guy on the trail? Do I want to meet him at his place while I'm taking stuff down? No. That's the last thing I want to do. So I went... I, I, I hustled, I really hustled to get down there. And when you're in rain gear, rain gear doesn't breathe, right? So I was sweating. Unfortunately, I didn't drink enough water beforehand, so I could feel I was getting dehydrated, but I didn't stop. So I gotta, let's, let's go back, let's rewind a minute. Like he was just passionate. He wanted to find a cabin just because he'd heard about it. And it was like kind of a fun thing to do. He loved to hike in the woods. Like, talk a little bit about what, yeah. what his purpose was. It's a little bit more than that for him. I, I mean, I think there were several layers here. So, yes, he wanted to get in there and see justice done um, and make sure that, you know, there were no more victims of this person who clearly, you know, had a bent for children. Um, but on top of that, this was an environmentally sensitive area. We're talking about old growth forest that um, had been used for logging, you know, 100 years plus earlier. And so they were trying to make sure that it could grow back and grow healthy. It's part of the reason there was no paved road, because it was an old growth environmentally sensitive area. So part of the reason he wanted to make sure this cabin was no longer there is because, you know, he wanted to protect the environment. And then also we have that third layer of the Forest Service decided they did want to let recreational users come into this area. What if they ran into this guy? But he had no idea when he went out there looking with, with his buddies that there was going to be this, this child porn cottage. He did not know that. No, part of the rumors were that it was uh, something fairy tale like, that there were fairies in the cabin, drawings or, you know, other types of fairy material. But there was never this hint of sexualized fairies. That was something he was not expecting. I, I don't blame him. I mean, this had to have been a huge shock when you because I've had that thing where, you you know, you kind of get obsessed about something and you're like, I got to find this. I've got to find this. I've got to find this. And then it's like, oh, my gosh, I found this. And now what am I going to do? <laughs> exactly. Right? So what did he do? Well, once he was at, back at the cabin, he was able to get down several of those framed pictures thanks to his power tools. He hoped to use them as evidence, but the DNR doesn't exactly have an evidence locker. Oh, it's great. not something they typically deal with. So he ended up bagging several of these images the best way that he knew how and then putting them in the back corner of a storage shed. And he put a note on it warning his coworkers. They don't want to look inside. Okay, so of course they're going to want to look inside. That's like the first thing that they're going to want to do. But I'm sure he took a risk himself by going there alone, getting these photos. Oh, absolutely. He was so scared of someone pulling him over Yeah. because he's not a law enforcement officer. He's a trail steward. So if he were to get pulled over and they found these images in the back of his truck. Oh, my God. He was really nervous that somebody would think that they were his. 
So he wanted to get them out of his truck as soon as possible. So rather than driving them into Seattle to try to drop them off as evidence, that's part of the reason he left them in the storage unit at the DNR office, because it was close by. He could get them out of his truck as quickly as possible and then let the authorities come in and take over and take them back into the city. And how scary would that be, too, to go out there by yourself not knowing not knowing if the guy was somewhere, you know, with binoculars. It took a lot of courage to do. I don't think I would be able to do that. Right. And CJ said, you know, it's it's funny because when he got into the business of working with the forests, he knew he might come across some, you know, scary animals and things like that. But what he discovered was the even scarier thing that he would find in the forest is the people. Yeah. Because you never knew. Like you said, what are they doing out there? Why are they out in the forest? And, you know, sometimes it's like us, you know, you want to go be with nature, but... Sometimes it's because you want to be alone yeah. because you don't want anybody to see what you're doing. Well, and I think that you've set it up like, you know, in these deep, deep woods. I mean, how deep was this this cabin? I mean. Oh, you could scream for days and no one would hear you. Oh, my gosh. OK, so what happens next? So when the sheriff's department had a chance to look at this set of disturbing images that he had pulled out and put in the storage shed, they decided they needed to bring in the FBI. What? But by this point, the snow had arrived. Okay. The feds notified CJ that while they were very interested in seeing this ferry cabin and the rest of its contents for themselves, the investigation would have to be put on hold for months. So that spring, I coordinated with them. I expected you know, a couple people. I said, hey, you can just hop in my truck. I'll take you down there. It'll be incognito. It'll be great. Gosh, I mean, the FBI showed up with like 16 people. It was incredible. They showed up with like the whole office. I, it was it was blew me away um and i'll never forget this guy steps out of his out of his vehicle remember the fbi folks huge guy just absolutely built and he he steps out with a shotgun in his hand i'm like oh my god this is real you know and he was relieved because cj said with all that help it meant he wouldn't have to go back into that cabin I'm, himself <laughs> i'm feeling relieved i mean he's been this on his own doing this and it's like there's lot lots of things that could have happened in yeah. between I mean, he's really, I mean, I'm glad he did it, but he's like really taking a risk to do the right thing. So now he's leading more than a dozen FBI agents into the woods. He's looking for the small markers that he had left himself along the hidden trail because it's the only way he could find it again. And when they arrived at the cabin, the agents climbed up onto the platform while CJ waited very gratefully back on the ground. And after that point, they said, wow, this place is full of porn. I said, no, it's not. I took almost all the images out. I said, well, it's, it's full of porn in here. I said, no way. I said, okay, okay. Is it okay if I go up and look, stick my head in this once and look inside? I said, absolutely, come on up. So I went up, you know, the ladder under the, under the little trap door and everything, poked my head indoors. All the pictures I, even take, I took down during the wintertime had been replaced and then extra ones had been added in. That is so... <laughs> Creepy. Yeah, so the troll who had been using this cabin had apparently gone back and continued his dirty deeds. But look at the hubris, too, of this of this troll. Like, we're going to call him a troll. He, I mean, I'm assuming it's a guy, you know. Yeah. He basically felt like, oh, somebody took my photos down. I'm just going to put them back up. I mean, well, he had to wonder who took his photos down. Was it law enforcement? Was it Forest Service? Was it a fellow person interested in this type of material? Apparently, it didn't matter to him I, because I just he just felt that. comfortable enough yes. to continue with this activity. 
So with all of this evidence finally gathered, the FBI was ready to find the person responsible. And that would actually turn out to be the easiest part of this whole case. Remember that truck that the locals had seen going into the forest over yeah. and over again? Well, they were able to connect the license plate from that truck. From eight years ago? With DNA evidence they found on a paper cup inside the cabin. All of that belonged to 56-year-old Daniel Wood, who lived in an apartment with his wife in Mill Creek. And they did a search of that apartment and they found thousands more images of children. Because of a plea deal, though, Daniel Wood served less than six months in prison. Wow. And CJ says for him, it changed his entire life. It changed his home life and it even changed his career. He left the Forest Service. My personal life was kind of falling apart at this period in my life. And I... I kind of joked around that this was, you know, the curse of the, of the fairy cabin. It was a profoundly negative experience. You know, there were those, those moments of triumph. At the same time, like, it weighed on me for a while. It was a factor in me changing careers. After that happened, at the end of my career with the DNR, I was much less willing to put myself out there. Also, it was just, like, I didn't want to have anything more to do with it after that. That is, like, I'm so torn right now. On the one hand, it's like, I'm so impressed that he kept with it. Right. You know, to find justice or, you know, closure and get that thing out of there. You know, he could have just burned it to the ground. But at what cost? What about Daniel Wood? What happened to that guy? That's really sad, actually, because of a plea deal. He got just six months in prison. He actually didn't even quite serve out six months. Wow. And he has been released Part of his release is that he register with the county as a sex offender. But if you go look on the sex offender registry, you won't find his name anywhere. You know, we were talking to, you know, our sources within the King County and Snohomish County because this happened in King County. But then also he lives, he in, lives Snohomish. in Snohomish County. And I was really, really shocked when I found out that a level one sex offender register. So when they say, oh, yeah, and he'll have to register. But that doesn't mean that there's going to, you know, people will know in their community like, oh, hey, there's this gingerbread guy. Just so you know, if you want to look him up, he you're, you won't find him. He's not right. listed as a sex offender. So police will have access to the records. They will know where he is, but he is not listed on the public registries. And I didn't even realize. I mean, I worked in news for 20 years and yeah. I didn't realize that registering as a sex offender does not necessarily mean you're going to show up on the public registry. If you're a level one, you only show up on the law enforcement registry. Right. And I talked to my cop friend yesterday and he was explaining that. He's like, you know, they have hard enough time just keeping track of the second and third levels. You know, the first the first level is like, hey, you know, we you know, they do the best that they can, but they're keeping track of, you know, obviously the second and third. But it's just like, man, that's that just seems incredible. The other thing that we don't know is what about the other person who they saw with Daniel Wood at times when he was going out to the ferry cabin? Mm -hmm. There were times when folks saw more than one person get out of that truck. And we still oh, have he no had to idea. have had help based yeah. on what. You know, you know, the, the how heavy it was. I mean, I'm speechless because I still cannot believe when we went out to the woods just walking around there. Of course, it was beautiful, but I couldn't imagine carting half a side of a gingerbread house, right. you know, up this terrain. And, you know, you have a seasoned forest ranger who can't even find it. It's so remote. So 
whatever happened to this guy? And were there any children that he ever brought there? Do you know? There's no evidence that he ever brought children there in person, um, just the photographs. But there were apparently quite a lot of them. Um, and again, we don't even know if the gingerbread house, the fairy cabin, if it's still there. There was talk of burning it to the ground. There was talk of tearing it down. But CJ never wanted to go back out there again after this investigation was complete. So we really don't know That's if it was ever torn down. That kind of surprises me because he made so many treks out there and then went out there, actually got the evidence. It surprises me that he didn't feel, and this is like no judgment because the guy went above and beyond the call of duty as far as I'm concerned just because of... I mean, it's a lot, right? Yeah. But it surprised me that he wouldn't want to know for sure that it was just based on the cuts and what we've heard from his personality. Like, it, it kind of shows, like, he was really messed up after it to not follow it through to the end. Well, but then again, Daniel Wood's back out there. Yeah. And so is whoever was with him. So even if they had burned this to the ground... There's there's no reason to think that he wouldn't have just gone find an, another place way out in the woods and just built another one. We have no idea. What type of person do you think, like, looking at CJ, I mean, he's truly the hero of the story. Yeah. If there is, a, you know, a, there is a hero, it's CJ. Have you ever been in that situation where you felt like you could do something and whether, you know, that that push and pull of that morality? Like, I don't, I don't think I, I would have wanted to help, but I don't think I would have been able to, to do what he did. I, I think I would have been CJ because I'm foolish. Well, when <laughs> you took me I in take, the woods, yeah. you were like, I, I was like <laughs> looking around. You're just like going. If it wasn't in that woody area that I'm uncomfortable with, like, I don't know. who, who You never know what you're going to do in those situations, if you're going to rise to the occasion or not. But Hey, I'm glad that you, you're going to rise to the occasion. I can totally picture you out there tromping around. I don't like, think it's because I'm that good of a person. I think it's because I'm that foolish of a person that I just wouldn't even think about the possibility of the person coming back and seeing me there. I would be so focused on doing the right thing that all of the risks and everything else just like kind of wouldn't even occur to me. I, I imagine that's where CJ was at, too. Yeah. When you talked about earlier, this was an interesting thing. When you talked about like people will make cottages or cabins out of the resources that are at hand, you showed me a little bit of that when when we went out there because like you you take the river rock and make the fire the fireplace. Like, right. what do people use to make these cottages, and how was it so different from? Because that shows a massive premeditation. Right. Like, we will have the pictures on our website of what this gingerbread cottage looked like. I mean, it is crazy terrain carrying just in pieces it would be difficult yeah i mean yeah so typically because of the terrain and because of how far you have to walk off the beaten path without a trail to get to these cabins or to build these cabins yeah a lot of times they would just use what was on the ground i mean think about it when you're in the forest you've got rocks you've got wood you've got large boughs that you can use from the trees to create your roof um, there's there's lots of materials out in the forest if you know how to use them, which people do. You know, they teach themselves how to do that. And and it would be, you know, a, a cabin, makeshift cabin, like a lean-to possibly where people would stay the night if they were, let's say, out hunting or, you know, they wanted to be up early to catch the fish in the Snoqualmie River. So maybe they would stay the night before so they could be there first thing in the morning. So they'd have these, you know, lean-to makeshift type cabins. Or the other thing he said is back in the gold rush, you would have gold miners who would, again, just create cabins from things that they found in the forest that would just be laying around. It's not 
too hard to do if you have, you know, the proper materials. You've got an axe and the saw and things like that. But definitely this cabin took a lot more effort. Yeah, it, it sure did. So, Carolyn, I'm hoping that next episode, the story you bring us will have a little bit more closure resolution than this one. It'll definitely have more closure in the sense of finality, but I think it'll make you wonder why. And we're calling the episode Christmas Carnage, which I think sets the stage, and that this is one of the most heinous massacres in Washington state history, and it takes place on Christmas Eve. So Can't wait to hear that one. (laughs) I'm Kim Shepard with Carolyn Osorio, and this is the scene of the crime. (laughs) 